Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Good morning, everyone out there. Um, so I am coming from all the way from Chicago, and uh, I wish for all participants to understand that CFS-ME, or chronic fatigue syndrome, and myalgic encephalomyelitis, henceforth known as CFS-ME, is, uh, is a very complex, uh, has complex criteria for the diagnosis. And one must exclude innumerable medical conditions uh, to utilize this diagnosis. There are also uh, exclusionary criteria also, meaning there are many diagnoses which can be considered uh, in addition to CFS-ME, which we'll go into. The evidence shows that the hallmark of CFS-ME is uh, mitochondrial dysfunction. And intense diet, nutritional, antioxidant, and other lifestyle modifications are the primary therapy for this disorder. And I submit that in my practice, uh, I use a lot of low-dose naltrexone as an important treatment adjunct for CFS-ME. So a 50-year-old female came into my clinic with a history of chronic fatigue. It started in about 2012 when she had a motor vehicle accident and she sustained a minor head injury with some uh, minor concussive symptoms. So uh, she uh, was diagnosed actually with trigeminal neuralgia a year later and had been uh, subsequently seen by innumerable specialists um, and just really suffering. By the time that I saw her um, this past uh, fall, she suffered from many symptoms, uh, including unrefreshed sleep, um, sleep disturbance, including, um, including um, uh, circadian rhythm dysfunction, and um, uh, especially um, post-exertional fatigue. So on weekends, she would describe trying to go out with her friends on a Saturday night, but she would, be, she would pay for it by being bedbound the entire next week. Um, and this was just snowballing and getting worse. She suffered from memory problems and uh, symptoms of dysautonomia, um, including postural um, hypotension. Um, she also uh, kind of glossed over the fact that she was having alternating diarrhea and constipation, increasing GI upset. So she, she went to over 10 doctors by the time I saw her. And um, she described tearfully that one doctor said, well, it's because you're 50. <laughs> and so, she was never really a high energy person, but she did have a good quality of life. She described in her 30s often working double shifts um, at a family restaurant, being on her feet for 12 hours at a time, um, and never really having a problem keeping up. So uh, when I started reviewing the um, case definitions for chronic fatigue syndrome, number one, my head started to spin. Um, number two, my head started to shake. And number three, I was quite frustrated um, because in CFS-ME, there is no validated test. And as a clinician and scientist, that's what we really need. We need data. And there are many overlapping definitions, so this becomes a rather wastebasket diagnosis. And we need to know these criteria to better um, target, have targeted therapies, because um, we need to target the underlying pathophysiology, and there is none utilizing these, these current criteria. So clinicians need a comprehensive approach many with this diagnosis are found to have treatable conditions. We just have to look for them. So 
in the last three years, especially, there's been a push for looking at systemic um, review of these case definitions for CFS and ME. And this just really made me sad, <laughs> uh, reviewing all of these. But um, really, uh, you know, what we have here is that we scientists have made a complete hash out of this. Um, we have too many cooks in the kitchen and too many diagnoses. So I'll start with myalgic encephalomyelitis, or ME, which was first described in the medical literature in 1938. Um, it was actually described as a neuromuscular illness that was associated uh, as a post-viral phenomenon from poliomyelitis um, due to several outbreaks that were happening. And Dr. Melvin Ramsey in 1955 coined the term ME actually because there was an outbreak among staff at the Royal Free Hospital in London. So um, ME was particularly described as persistent muscular weakness after minor exertion. And uh, they described both neurologic and circulatory impairments. Neurological symptoms including um, symptoms of cerebral dysfunction, uh, severe brain fog, memory issues, day and night reversal, emotional lab lability, and then circulatory impairments like cold, uh, cold extremities, temperature change in tolerance, and orthostasis. So CFS and chronic fatigue was relatively new, uh, newer on the horizon. In the 1980s, the term was given, CF or chronic fatigue, based on just the diagnosis of unexplained chronic fatigue. And that definition was given by uh, Holmes in 1988, followed by a modified definition in uh, 1994, the so-called Fukuda um, subtype. Um, and really, these are just subjective, ambiguous criteria. So um, looking at the literature, um, all the way up through 2017, just recently, the, this diagnosis, CFS and ME, are still subject to quite a significant amount of controversy. So the case definitions overlap, and really they're just simply an overlapping mess, as you can see here. It's kind of um, doing the systematic review, and they diagrammed it all out just uh, quite confusing and really difficult to make sense. So how is a physician or a primary care doc who has boots on the ground going to deal with the patient that's wandering into their office? Not, where, not very well, I submit. So to make matters even more complicated, um, in the mid-2000s, um, the uh, former um, nonprofit known as the Institute of Medicine in the US came up with new criteria. They wished to actually replace CFS-ME with um, a new diagnosis called SEID, or Systematic Exertion Intolerance Disease. Um, but they settled for this proposed diagnostic criteria for ME and CFS, which um, includes the following. Chronic fatigue persisting for more than six months, which um, does not uh, resolve with rest, post-exertional malaise, sleep disturbance, and then they kind of throw in the wastebasket diagnoses from um, ME of having one of the following, either cognitive impairment or orthostatic intolerance. And so, you know, we have this assumption then by this that CFS and ME are similar diet disorders, but this is invalid. These criteria, you know, are separate. These are separate entities, and this has erroneously created a hybrid disease. And so I think we've really done a disservice even further um, to those that are really looking and trying to elucidate root causes for uh, the disorder. 
And so um, there have been many um, attempts um, to create primers for clinicians on how to approach chronic fatigue and ME. And I found this one to be um, pretty helpful, and I want to, to go through both the inclusion and exclusionary criteria. Starting with the overarching, um, the overarching knowledge that really we have multi-system dysregulation in MECFS. There are many predisposing factors, but the very highest yield and most predisposing factor that you can have is actually gender. Um, females are far more likely to be afflicted. And there are many significant triggers. Um, we have talked a lot about this in the conference and we'll continue to do so, that acute or chronic co-infections are, um, are a very uh, significant trigger for these, um, as well as environmental toxins and major physical or emotional traumas. So there is this overwhelming immune response and either a, patient, a patient's immune system deals well with that response or it becomes maladaptive. And in that process, you can have immune systems. So either flu-like symptoms, which are very, very common, um, persistent sore throats, swollen um, lymph nodes, and then new sensitivities, often manifesting as multiple chemical medication and food sensitivities. We also have persistent muscle fatigue, pain, joint pain, and muscle pain. And this manifests throughout the central and peripheral nervous system and throughout the HPA axis. So we have central nervous system symptoms, neuroendocrine symptoms, and autonomic dysfunction. So the differential diagnosis that a primary care physician, such as an internist like myself, you must successfully, if, you're, if you accept this challenge, to go through and you have to exclude every single one of these criteria to say that this is CFS-ME. So just all of these criteria, autoimmune, cardiovascular, endocrinopathies, metabolic issues, GI, malignancies, hematologic, infections, neuromuscular, psychiatric, respiratory sleep disorders, toxicity, and the other. I submit in my practice that I see innumerable um, immune dysregulation that really stems from several things. One, um, of course, we see much hypothyroidism and co-infections, the majority being um, I see reactivated EBV and a lot of Lyme disease. So, and I would be remiss if I didn't include the fact that with immune dysregulation, autoimmunity simply is a loss of tolerance to your own tissue. So you can make an antibody against any protein in the body. And so when we look at autoimmunity as an underlying root cause, I submit that it can encompass just about every one of these criteria and categories. So along with the differential diagnosis of medical exclusions that you must make to call a patient having CFS or ME. These are non-exclusionary overlapping diagnoses, so a patient can technically also have these diagnoses and still have CFS, ME. So again, they encompass autoimmune disorders, cardiovascular, dermatologic, endocrine metabolic, GI, gynecologic, hematologic, neurologic, respiratory, rheumatologic, sleep disorders, or urinary uh, symptoms. And as far as uh, exclusionary and non-exclusionary conditions, I'm just reminded of the house of God. Rule number 10, 
if you, if you don't take a temperature, you can't find a fever. So most cl clinicians just say, okay, they run basic labs and they say, okay, there's nothing wrong. You just have fatigue. Get over it. Exercise. And so in my practice, I see as far as um, non-exclusionary non overlapping criteria, of course, the big uh, criteria categories being autoimmune, um, endocrine and metabolic, GI, and rheumatologic. So I am a functional medicine physician, really just a wonky internist um, that happens to have autoimmunity, and decided to um, train and figure out how we can best get the data to figure out root causes in patients who have these zebras. And so I'd like to go through, just for clinicians and those out there who are trying to figure out their own um, conditions, think the approach that I go through as far as having a comprehensive, systematic approach towards someone with chronic fatigue. So first of all, I look at foundational biomarkers that every single patient in my practice gets. So. Most, most patients can't afford a huge workup, and some patients say, really, doc, I just have to have bare bones workup. And I submit that you can glean so much from just a complete blood count and a comprehensive metabolic profile. Doctors are now trained to just look at the highs and the lows on a test and see just the abnormals, but a true clinician will understand the patterns and can discern and diagnose a myriad of things from just these two labs. I look at markers of dysglycemia, including A1C and fasting insulin, markers of um, inflammation, so chronic inflammation by highly sensitive C-reactive protein, and more acute inflammatory marker, said rate. I look at iron metabolism issues, and we can look at anemias from that in conjunction with the CBC, and also um, inflammatory anemias as well. I look at advanced lipid testing and also omega-6 to 3 ratios. So the majority of my practice is thyroid-based, so um, pardon me for overindulging in um, a little bit of soapbox items, that the treatment of um, thyroid conditions is one of the biggest travesties in, in medicine in the 21st century. And I submit that every clinician must learn to uh, learn and fight the system of actually fighting for a full thyroid panel, which forevermore includes a TSH, free T3, free T4, reverse T3, and as Kent Holtorf has beautifully elucidated in the literature, um, a marker of cellular hypothyroidism, which is looking at a free T3 to reverse T3 through ratio, and thyroid disease is going to be further covered. I also do a thorough autoimmune workup, which in commercial testing is admittedly very, very difficult. The ANA test is, is fraught with a lot of, a lot of issues. Um, healthy populations um, of women especially can have low positive titers of ANA. Certain drugs can cause a positive ANA. Um, you can have um, ANAs that rapidly fluctuate between negative and positive. And Aristo Vajdani, who is a, a real important um, microbiologist, immunologist, has actually shown that um, environmental conditions such as mercury can complex with ANA with this nuclear antibody. And it's been shown especially um, in women. Um, but if you have a significantly high titer of ANA and they run a reflex, you can um, start to consider other uh, autoimmune disorders, um, including lupus and Sjogren's and scleroderma and um, mixed connective tissue disease. Um, I look at CCP antibody as the most specific marker for persistent rheumatoid arthritis, along with uh, um, fractionated rheumatoid factor. I test for celiac disease and non-celiac um, gluten sensitivity. Um, there's a lot 
to do with that, a lot of brouhaha in the literature. Um, if a patient's been gluten-free for a long time, I actually do HLA typing to look and see what their risk is because there's a certain point you cannot test for celiac disease. And um, we must recognize that um, gluten enteropathy, as far as having celiac sprue in the gut diagnosed by a um, biopsy is not complete. We have different forms of TTG antibody, which um, can complex in the body and cause different forms of celiac disease, both also not just for the gut, but the brain and the skin. Um, Dr. Weinstock just uh, talked about dermatitis or pediformis as an example. And then to go along with the thyroid function, I look at a complex of antibodies that most doctors in the country don't even know about. So we look at TPO antibody, thyroid peroxidase, and thyroglobulin antibody to diagnose Hashimoto's, more on that later, and thyroid stimulating immunoglobulin and TSH receptor antibody for Graves' disease. So <laughs> to, to make things even harder, one can have concomitant Hashimoto's and Graves. So it's very difficult. So I look at full um, vitamin uh, workup, which is also uh, looking at serum is very, um, it's a very, they're very, they're very poor testing. It's really um, hard to get true values of what's going around in the serum of B vitamins. So I look at patterns. I look at thiamine, B6, B12, and folate, and I can see based on numbers if I've got a low or high, if I've got a high MCV, so mean corpuscular volume on the CBC, that patient's got a megaloblastic anemia likely secondary to a B12 or folate deficiency, which I, I also correlate with the methylmalonic acid. And when that's high, I can see that that's most, like a, most likely a B12 deficiency. I see a lot of malabsorption. I also then will rule out pernicious anemia if a patient has persistent malabsorption, um, looking at those antibodies. And uh, pet peeve, <laughs> I'm in Chicago where everybody is vitamin D deficient. And uh, we really want to get our autoimmune patients and patients with chronic fatigue at um, a significant absorption of vitamin D, um, 60 to 80 in my practice. Um, and some patients actually have SNPs, notably the VDR-TAC mutation, which um, does not allow someone, if they're homozygous, to properly absorb vitamin D. So we look at that too. So other nutrient testing, I do red blood cell count uh, testing. Um, I submit that um, serum magnesium is really useless. So if you're looking at that, it just doesn't show a marker of sufficiency of magnesium. 99% of humans are deficient in magnesium. Um, and magnesium is really important. A good clinical pearl is that magnesium is important for the absorption of vitamin D. So if you've got low magnesium, you're not going to get that vitamin D, D up. Zinc and copper ratios are really important, looking for, um, <clears throat> looking for um, iron uh, metabolism and also can be um, implicated in anxiety and depression. I look at red blood cell selenium markers because a lot of my patients are coming in having read that selenium is great for lowering thyroid antibodies. And um, they're self-treating, and I'm seeing quite high levels of selenium. And of note, selenosis has similar uh, symptoms of hypothyroidism. So uh, I, I test, I don't guess, as far as supplementation. I also get coenzyme Q10 levels on patients, especially those who've had, um, who've had statin use or women who have had uh, chronic oral contraceptive use. So finally, hormone testing. So uh, in the allopathic world, this is, uh, I've joined the dark side. <laughs> and in my, in my opinion, um, to quote Star Wars, only a Sith Lord deals in absolutes. So, so 
Um, in allopathic medicine, there is no such thing as adrenal fatigue, and there isn't. Uh, organs don't get fatigued, so please, let's use the correct terminology. Um, there is such thing as adrenal dysfunction, and in fact, severe adrenal dysfunction, severe HPA access dysfunction in chronic illness, um, especially chronic fatigue syndrome and ME. Now, I submit that um, it's really important to look at diurnal patterns of cortisol. I do a 4.24-hour cortisol on as many patients that I can get that in, salivary testing. Um, allopaths will only recognize the extremes, either very high loss of diurnal pattern of cortisol, that is hypercortisolism or Cushing's, either disease from a pituitary tumor or syndrome, often from exogenous steroid use, or hypocortisolism, inability for the adrenal cortex to make cortisol, that's Addison's, which most commonly is actually an adrenal disorder from autoimmunity. So you get destruction of the adrenal cortex from 21-hydroxylase antibodies, which we can measure. Now, actually, if we think about in time, the, the previous, the previous um, most common reason for people to have Addison's was actually tuberculosis, which caused uh, uh, an adren a chronic adrenalitis. And we think that that's what JFK had, maybe. So versus um, polyglandular autoimmune syndrome. So uh, as a student of history, I find this very, very interesting. So I do complete sex hormone testing, um, and there are metabolites that we can get via urine. Um, I know that uh, Dr. Um, Zava will talk more about testing and hormone testing, that you really need to choose the proper test for the patient, whether the patient is taking hormone replacement, et cetera. I also look at pituitary markers uh, for uh, hormones looking at secondary HPA access issues and metabolic issues, such as using leptin, fasting leptin. So in my practice, I use a lot of questionnaires, and um, I ask my patients about their lifestyle. So we ask them, what is their level of functioning? Do they, do they have a movement practice? Do they exercise? Can they exercise? Do they, are they able to sleep well? Do they have re relaxation? Um, uh, modalities that they use. How's their nutrition? How is their hydration status? Now, not only do I ask them about their current nutrition, but what their nutrition status was growing up. And if we really want to be in, into root cause medicine, I actually ask my patients what their mother's nutrition status was during pregnancy in the prenatal period. Stress, as has been um, explained, is a huge, huge root cause of much of much um, immune system dysfunction. And uh, if you come to my practice, I'm known to flippantly write prescriptions that say, quit your toxic job, leave that guy, uh, get outside. Um, because there's only so much that I can do. There's only so much we can do with a pill or a supplement. And we look at relationships. Does the patient have a good support system? In my practice, patients do not improve no matter what I do if they do not have a strong underlying support system. So, as an internist, we cannot forget basics, and that starts with a thorough history and a physical. Now, we look at um, cardiac screening. If a person is a walking heart attack on a plate, I will refer. I get sleep studies in patients, and I do imaging. If a patient has antibodies, I will, uh, thyroid antibodies, I will get a thyroid ultrasound. I will look at pituitary MRIs. I will do whatever I need to get them diagnosed. And there are many comprehensive testing considerations. So uh, 
I look at stool analysis via a multitude of um, possible ways. So there's PCR and culture, there's digestive and absorption markers, and virulence factors and toxins. I look at genetic testing, both metabolomic and SNP, microbiome, viral, even mitochondrial. And new on the block is organic acid testing, and we can test these. I look at infections and co-infections, and we can, we can look at serology, antibody, PCR, breath testing for SIBO, cytokines and immunity markers, CD57 and Lyme disease being the most notable. Environmental issues, toxic metals, chemical sensitivity, mycotoxins. New on the block for me is heart rate variability and event-related uh, potentials and quantitative EEGs. We actually have a, neuro, um, a neuropsychologist that I'm looking forward to in my practice to refer for neuro and biofeedback. And new on the block also is further autoimmune elucidation via intestinal permeability markers, food sensitivity markers. Um, we must also look at um, cooked and raw food antigens because the immune system will have a different response to cooked broccoli versus raw broccoli. Expanded autoantibody panels and markers of neuroautoimmunity. I can also look at oxidative stress markers. Um, one of my favorites is 8-hydroxydeoxyguanosine, eight, eight which is a marker of um, damaged DNA. We can look at glutathione, and I can actually see genetic SNPs where people can't make glutathione very well, which is the master antioxidant. And then damage to cell membranes via lipid peroxidation. So my 50-year-old with chronic fatigue, she has on thorough workup, cellular hypothyroidism, high antibodies, but a normal TSH. I, sh I show uh, her labs uh, have chronic mycoplasma. She's reactive. Uh, she's showing reactivation of Epstein-Barr. She has multiple nutritional deficiencies, fungal overgrowth, indicating mal malabsorption, severe vitamin D deficiency, and heavy metal exposure. Turns out when I uh, talked to her, she had a penchant for um, being a, a metal jewelry maker, and she soldered in a closed room without any ventilation. Um, and uh, she has a mouthful of amalgams. So that was my starting point with this patient. So I submit, does she have chronic fatigue syndrome? Or are there many issues contributing to her imbalances? So as an example, immune system dysregulation and Hashimoto's hypothyroidism is an example that autoantibody auto production is a asymptomatic process over, over weeks, months, years culminating in chronic lymphocytic infiltration of thyroid or other tissue, atrophy of the gland and loss of function. We have to recognize this with the autoimmune process. We have to characterize the fatigue. Homer Simpson is my spirit animal, by the way. And we have to, we have to characterize what type of fatigue. Is it central? Is it from a neurotransmitter that is um, influencing um, the production of things from the brain and, and spinal cord? Is it peripheral? Is it just muscle fatigability, or is it subjective? Is it sleepiness? We can use a multiple latent sleep test for that. And this is metabolomic uh, research. So this is every biochemical pathway. It's just this, is all. Let's get a little closer. It's really easy. This is um, a simplified representation of um, mitochondrial biochemical pathways. And this is oxidative phosphorylation. So are, do you have PTSD yet? I know I do. Um, so how many people had to memorize the citric acid cycle, TCA? So, so we, in medical school, in high school, this was just, none of us had to, it just wasn't important. But as it turns out, it really is important, gosh darn it. So um, we want to look at mitochondria as the powerhouse of the cell. And it's really complicated, as it turns out. 
So environmental factors, mitochondrial DNA variation, nuclear DNA variation, all contribute to oxidative phosphorylation dysfunction and mitochondrial damage, leading to progressive bioenergetic decline and all of these syndromes. Now, diet is paramount. So there was a, a pictorial, Time did a, in 2004, they actually went around the world and they, 24 countries, and they took a family and they took photos of a week of their diet and the food that they ate. And this is very indicative of the food in um, the urban center where I trained in Chicago. Um, there's a food desert, there are food deserts, there is no grocery store. Um, families don't cook, they don't teach cooking to, to their children. And um, this leads to a high caloric, high empty caloric, low phytonutrient dense diet. Versus the IFM has put together that to enhance mitochondrial function, we have mitochondrial foods. So the top therapeutic foods are here. Grass-fed beef, um, organic ol um, olive oil and coconut oil, pomegranate, cruciferous vegetables, wild-caught salmon, seafood, avocado, almonds, extra virgin olive oil, spinach, and blueberries, and green tea. Now, I have to mention and give um, major credit to Dr. Terry Walls, a fellow internist. She's in Iowa. Um, uh, you know, a picture really says a thousand words. She's one of the pioneers in mitochondrial dysfunction and, and translating this to an easy practice for, uh, for patients with autoimmune disease and chronic fatigue. She actually has uh, relapsing remitting MS um, that progressed to secondary progressive MS and she was in a zero tilt wheelchair in October of 2007. Um, she could not lift her head. Uh, fast forward to a year on an anti-inflammatory nutrient dense mitochondrial focused diet, hunter-gatherer diet, she could bike 18 miles and walk uninhibited in her practice. Um, limited on time, but as far as antioxidant therapy for CFS-ME, these are the major targets, and I specifically optimize glutathione and the precursors of glutathione, which is the master antioxidant of the um, cellular organism. Um, precursors include N-acetylcysteine and alpha-lipoic acid. That cysteine molecule goes to regenerate glutathione. CoQ10, bilberry, and ginkgo biloba are neuroprotective. Proanthocyanidins and essential fatty acids are uh, protective to the lipids and protective to um, um, the cell membranes from uh, ROS species, reactive oxygenation species. And then selenium, all of these processes, glutathione processes, that's actually uh, selenium mediated. Um, these are the essential um, nutrients that in the literature have been reviewed as important for chronic fatigue. And I submit that we need to have adjunctive treatments for um, vagal nerve toning. So um, the vagus nerve, also known as the wandering nerve, is the seat of the parasympathetic nervous system. And all of us living in our modern world, and the majority of the women that I see, because I see the majority of women in my practice, have high sympathetic nervous system tone and low parasympathetic nervous tone nervous system tone, we're all go, 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 and no rest in our modern American society. So we look at simple treatment modalities that can help tone that vagus nerve, such as singing, humming, diaphragmatic breathing, um, gargling vigorously to the point of making tears, um, doing yoga, and um, walking, and living in appreciation, um, and meditation. One simple um, modality that I've been using in my practice for chronic fatigue patients is heart rate variability and there are several free apps um, that you can get and um, this actually shows that we can 
look at markers of high parasympathetic tone if we see a high variability in heart rate. This is measured from beat to beat of the R to R interval on an EKG. And you can see if a patient is living in frustration versus a shift to appreciation, they've replicated this study showing uh, the term is coherence, um, showing this higher heart rate variability and higher parasympathetic tone greater quality of life. Now there are apps that patients can use that can they can actually have by their bedside and over a period of weeks they get a baseline. The app gets a baseline of what the patient is and the chronic fatigue patient can look at the app and they will get a green, yellow, or red bar to tell them how much energy reserve they likely have for that day. And that's been a real game changer in the field. So in general we want to quench the fire of inflammation um, and immune system dysregulation. No one therapy is going to be the panache. And in my experience, such is the case. So we want to have a bucket brigade of therapies and adjuncts, diet, et cetera, to quench that fire. So low-dose naltrexone is an important adjunct. And this is actually the patent that uh, Benar Bahari et al. used um, that I found. And they referenced um, naloxone reversible monocyte dysfunction in patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, abs an abstract from 1989. And so um, I often cite Dr. Younger's paper, who he'll, he'll be speaking um, soon, um, with my patients. And I give my patients the data so that they can talk with their other physicians and they can make the decision whether to use it. Um, because it is uh, a rather novel treatment, even though we've been using it for many years off-label, but a novel treatment in the, in the literature. Uh, this, this article was from 2014. And so in my practice, I utilize low-dose naltrexone for all of these, um, all of these endpoints that low-dose naltrexone can offer. The metencephalins for the immune system augmentation, the beta endorphins to help promote better sleep, mood, and pain control. Um, dampening down microglia, um, um, microglia um, which are implicated in low-grade um, immune system brain inflammation, immune modulation at the T-cell level, and anti-inflammation. So again, the takeaway is that chronic fatigue syndrome is, and, um, and myalgic encephalomyelitis is based on complex diagnostic criteria. You must exclude innumerable medical conditions the hallmark of CFS-ME is mitochondrial dysfunction. One must undergo intense lifestyle modifications as a primary therapy for this disorder. And LDN or low-dose naltrexone is an important treatment adjunct that has served very well and has had several, several great successes. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation. All past conference presentations can be found on our website, www.ldnresearchtrust.org.